Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Sophia Stamatopoulou-Robbins to talk about how we can look at Israel and Palestine and global issues on a large scale in new ways through the fascinating lens of waste, the byproducts of human society, and what we do with them. It's an important perspective because we often look at Israel-Palestine and the Middle East at large in terms of resources, things like water and oil. And Sophia's book, which is titled Waste Siege, The Life of Infrastructure in Palestine, offers a new perspective by looking not at the resources, but at the byproducts of society. And so this turns everything on its head in exciting and incredibly challenging ways. As she puts it, the experience of Palestinians being besieged by waste both describes the state of statelessness in Palestine and specifically the challenges of infrastructure in that particular situation, but it also serves as a metaphor for a dying planet as a whole. Sophia Stamatopoulou-Robbins is an assistant professor of anthropology at Bard College. Her book, Waste Siege, which we'll talk about today on the podcast, was awarded the 2020 Albert Harani Book Award from the Middle East Studies Association. Waste Siege offers an exciting and innovative approach to thinking about Israel and Palestine and the lived experience of Palestinians in particular through the lens of waste. As Palestinians are increasingly forced into proximity with their own wastes as well as those of Israelis, what happens when this waste is transformed from what we might call matter out of place into matter that has no place to go. This is a powerful and provocative approach because it articulates matter-of-fact aspects of what life is like in the Palestinian territories, but it also offers us a conceptual framework to ask questions about the byproducts of Zionism and its history in both practical and metaphorical terms. What have been the outcomes of the rise of Jewish nationalism and the formation of the state of Israel that many people would prefer to push off to the side or out of sight? On a more global scale, this waste siege on the Palestinians calls on us to think about the nature of our planet at large. Considering the climate crisis careening towards us, how can the experience of the Palestinians speak to the broader phenomenon of the global south? and its encounter with the waste of the industrialized world. There really is so much to delve into with this, and I'm just incredibly excited to be able to share this conversation with you. I hope that you'll check out the book, Waste Siege, and I've also posted a link to an excerpt in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this really exciting book and some of the big issues that we can take away from it. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, the title is just so phenomenal. And the topic and the issues that you're dealing with, such an interesting and distinctive approach to thinking about issues in Israel and Palestine. I'm hoping that maybe you could get us started by explaining a bit about what you mean when you talk about a waste siege, so to speak. You know, what this means in terms of the lived experience of the Palestinians and also generally speaking, the concept of being under siege by waste and why this is an important and useful idea to think with. Well, I'll just start by defining waste siege broadly. I think of it as the condition of encirclement 
by wastes as the inescapability from wastes and from a sense of wastefulness. That's the obvious part, which is, you know, the sense of being besieged. But the second part is that in waste siege, the same burdensome materials that constitute the siege also constitute the sort of menu of materials that you can use to alleviate the burdens of that same siege. So in other words, waste siege is circular, but it's also always changing because people are kind of engaging with the materials and experiences or processes of waste siege in order to mitigate it and therefore changing its form or its shape, but sort of helping it also be carried forward. That's a kind of very abstract conceptual way to talk about what waste siege is. When we talk about the waste siege that's taking place, at, particularly in the Gaza Strip in the West Bank, what does this mean in kind of specific terms? In the West Bank, Palestinians are inundated by wastes that end up coming across the Green Line from Israel, but they're also inundated very much by their own wastes. That is a kind of a historically intensified situation. So in a way, I am making a historical argument in the book by saying that really after the 1990s, after Oslo, there was a huge kind of uptick in waste production by Palestinian society, as well as waste inundation by Israeli society in the West Bank, in Palestinian areas of the West Bank. The everyday experience of Palestinians involves a kind of constant interaction at multiple different scales with various wastes. So, you know, one really iconic image is of a person walking on a road in, let's say, Ramallah or on the way to Kalandia checkpoint and just walking by block after block of dumpsters overflowing with waste that are then being burned to mitigate the size of that pile in the dumpster. And, you know, that being a kind of inescapable experience for someone who's living their daily life in the West Bank. There's that. And then there's the scale of people who are in the Palestinian bureaucracy, with whom I spent a lot of time in municipalities and in the Palestinian Authority, who are trying to troubleshoot at a policy level, either at the scale of the city or a village or at the scale of the West Bank as a whole, what to do essentially with the accumulations of waste. I do want to say that I'm really interested in the multiple scales, you know, so the person with the trash fire next to them as they walk to school and also the bureaucrat who's thinking, you know, about the future of Palestine being inundated with waste. Yeah, there are so many different ways in which we can take this. I think that part of what's at stake here is the way in which waste helps us to conceive of the situation in Israel and Palestine, kind of broadly speaking. How is it that waste helps us to think through kind of really big issues about the nature of what's been taking place in Israel and Palestine, both recently and also over the course of the past generations. Yeah, if I can answer that kind of diagonally, I'll just say that the way that this project came about was that I was thinking a lot about the way that people responded to Hamas winning the 2006 elections, the legislative elections. And what we were hearing primarily from people who are kind of on the center or to the left was that Palestinians had voted, even Palestinians who were not in particular supporters of Hamas or of political Islam, were voting for 
what Hamas represented in terms of welfare and infrastructure provision because the Fatah-led PA had failed to provide certain forms of welfare and infrastructure. And, you know, it really struck me that there was such a quick and easy move to say that people voted on the basis of what they thought about infrastructure and, and welfare. And I thought, you know, that's really not the way we tend to think about the developed world, to put it bluntly, or, you know, the global north, that usually there are more factors at play when we think about politics and electoral politics. And then the thing that really struck me, too, is that you really can't make that move so easily in a place like Palestine. I mean, in particular, the West Bank or Gaza, where there hasn't been the experience of a state in the long term, so that you don't have the accumulation of experience of holding accountable a central government when things go wrong. You know, in fact, you have multiple governments. And of course, since the mid 90s, you have international donors playing a really huge role. And then you have the kind of layer cake of the Israeli administration, the Palestinian Authority and, you know, and municipalities and other NGOs, etc. So I thought that from by looking at something that is so fundamental to everyday life, like waste and thinking about when people get upset, basically, when there are waste accumulations, whom they blame, when they act, when they feel they don't need to act, that I would understand something about kind of what infrastructure has to do with politics, essentially, in at the turn of the 21st century. And then I was really interested also in the fact that waste at that time, when I was starting in 2007, was really not being talked about at all. I mean, I think there were sort of discussions of the environment, there were discussions of water, but there was very little on waste. And so I figured methodologically, if I went to Palestine and asked people about waste, they would have less rehearsed answers, essentially, than they do for something like water or electricity, where they're kind of being, being inundated with by researchers and journalists who want to ask them questions about that, and they have ready answers. You said a little bit about how you came to this topic, you know, why waste was particularly interesting to you. But what is it about waste that helps us to think through big questions you know, about what's been happening in terms of Israel and the Palestinian territories? You know, what is going on there, you know, both in terms of, like you mentioned, the history of infrastructure and also in terms of the history of the relationship between the Israeli society, the Israeli government and the Palestinians, you know, and between, you know, later also the Jewish settlements in the West Bank, you know, and the Palestinians living there as well. Like what does waste give us as a lens to think through kind of what's going on on a bigger scale? One way to answer that is to say that it helps us look at multiple scales at the same time. So one question that it kind of answers, and it may be a question that we don't realize we have or we should have, but that question is, who governs the West Bank? And I think that you can get the answer by looking at this material and where it goes and how it's processed and when it's left there when capital gets invested to place it in certain places or to treat it in certain ways, I think from those very impractical, tangible practices and sites, we can see who is kind of managing this territory. And that is such an important thing for us to know politically, above all, because since the mid-1990s, either you have people saying that the Palestinian Authority, now that it exists, is the government. You have that coming from various political positions where there's an assumption that whether or not it is recognized fully as sovereign, it can be held accountable for various things. Like it exists. 
and it is the government. And then you have other people who sort of ignore its presence, including, you know, at some point, I remember early in my project, I had faculty telling me, you know, really, you want to talk about the PA? You know, they're not really doing anything. You know, and I thought, like, you get to find out what they are doing and if they are doing something from a project that looks at waste. But then you do have people who think that, you know, essentially the PA is to which the Israeli administration has outsourced its occupation. And so it's sort of treated as a neutral conduit, you know, that does Israel's bidding and that therefore sort of doesn't deserve its own analysis beyond what it does to facilitate essentially the occupation. And I think that waste enabled me to see the very dense and thick and complicated network, which includes donors, which includes companies, which includes people who are not sort of formed in something that's legible and coherent, who might just be people in a neighborhood who are all managing the everyday together. And I think that's important to understand so that we know how we want to name the condition, essentially, that we are looking at when we look at contemporary occupied Palestine. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to think about. Uh, You were talking about like the ways in which the Palestinian Authority plays different kinds of roles in terms of the occupation, in terms of the day-to-day life of the Palestinians themselves. And it's interesting because I think that when we think about basic infrastructure, people don't think about it for the most part, when it works properly, right? You know, when you turn on the tap in your apartment and clean water comes out, no one gives that any thought. Or really, for the most part, people don't give it any thought. It's when there's failures in infrastructure. And thinking about, like, for instance, you know, questions of clean water or when it comes to waste management or, I don't know, like nuclear power plants. And people may not pay attention to what kind of plant is producing their power until it turns out that it was a a nuclear plant that melted down or... You know, if they somehow see the direct outcome of a coal-based plant, you know, or something, and ultimately it's a question of what is the role of infrastructure in society? And I think that's part of what's really interesting here in general, and it also speaks to the question of what's been taking place in terms of the history of Israel and Palestine over the course of the past hundred years, if not more, which is the question of what does it mean to build up infrastructure? So much of the Zionist movement, the, the building of the Yishuv, later the State of Israel, was an attempt to try to, to construct the infrastructure to increase the absorptive capacity of the land. And then later on, also, you think about, you know, what does this mean in terms of the Palestinians as well? There's so much going on here as we think about the history of infrastructure and about how waste is a useful element that people tend not to think about in terms of their daily lives. Yeah. I mean, if I can respond to a couple of things there, one just point on that last thing that you mentioned is that I was struck so much by the fact that my observations of the efforts the Palestinian Authority was making to build waste infrastructures was resembled so much those early Zionist efforts, you know, that kind of focus on independent infrastructure, essentially, no matter what. And I say no matter what, because there are all kinds of ways in which that presented challenges for construction. Uh, So for example, Israel would often say, we'll let you build a wastewater treatment plant as long as you connect it to a settlement wastewater treatment plant. And the PA would say that's a red line. We won't because the point is to build the infrastructures of the state. I do want to say that vision and that insistence of the Palestinian Authority to build the infrastructures that it imagined to be the foundation of a future state took the oxygen out of the room in terms of what other possibilities there could be for taking care of waste. And of course, the assumption was, and this is going to get us a little bit toward our kind of capitalism, climate change direction, 
the assumption was definitely that we consume and we produce waste at the normal speed of any normal, you know, ideally normal society. And then we build the infrastructures to house those wastes. But we don't try to limit what we produce because we're still in the process of becoming what everybody else is, which I, I think is something that you find in general in the global south. I would say that people in infrastructure studies who study it in the global south are have been making this point over and over again, which is important, which is that in a lot of places, like basically the post-colonial world, let's say, infrastructures are just failing all the time. One interesting question to ask is, do people perceive it to be a problem in those cases? Or is there a kind of a normality to infrastructural failure such that something else becomes the abnormal thing you notice? You know, I happened to do my research in this special moment when the PA was trying to build up infrastructures from scratch for waste, like infrastructures that did not previously exist. It was disrupting essentially processes and practices of managing waste in the name of order, a new order, but in ways that were very disruptive to people who had become accustomed to, for example, dump sites being at the edge of every municipality instead of being few and centralized, you know, two or three across the whole West Bank. So what could look like failure now from the PA's perspective was successful management at that time. So I think the question of perception and how populations experience infrastructural failure is super interesting. I think that that it's really important for us to place this in terms of the specific context of Palestine, you know, and the political and military struggles that have taken place there, which is to say that I think that part of what's interesting about the concept of waste siege as a framework for thinking about the status of the Palestinians, the experience of the Palestinians, it changes the register in which we're thinking about it. Because I think that when people talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when people talk about the occupation, the building of settlements and so on and so forth, it's, I think, often in, in terms of thinking about politics you know, political rights, you know, freedom, citizenship, statehood, and so on. The idea of waste siege helps us to reframe this entirely to say that this is not just about being besieged by a military force, right? Or, you know, besieged politically or in any other kind of way, but kind of a, a fundamental experience of kind of being buried in the waste of everything that's surrounding them. That is an entirely different kind of register of thinking about the nature of the experience of the Palestinians. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because the question of how waste siege relates to this thing we call politics is, I think, an open question. I mean, I think some people might have liked this book to be more obviously making a statement that there is one direct cause and it's like, this is the story of Israel dumping on the West Bank, for example. But the siege has come about because of really a number of different, sometimes even competing processes. And yeah, I mean, I guess one way to distill what it does is to say it centers the question of livability. It's kind of an ugly word, but it's insisting that we think about how Palestinians' experiences have become unlivable, what the materialities of that unlivability are. That feels like something we've already kind of known I guess, you know, when we talk about ethnic cleansing or, you know, slow expulsion, we often hear 
about it becoming unlivable, maybe economically, especially for Palestinians to live in the West Bank. So they end up emigrating. But this is a way to say, you know, the kind of foundations of material life, consumption and waste production, and then besiegedness by waste also contribute to that uneven livability of the broader territory of Israel-Palestine. Yeah, I mean, it also raises all sorts of questions about the nature of a future Palestinian state, which is to say, like you said, is a future Palestinian state livable? And this, of course, it goes back to the water question as well. It's like, will a future Palestinian state, whatever its borders may look like, people often focus on will they have access to the resources in order to have a sustainable state, but it's also will they have a place to put all the waste you know, which is just the natural byproduct in a way of a sort of a modern capitalist society. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing to unpack there and what you said is the natural part. I mean, I know you said natural byproduct of capitalist society as opposed to just natural byproduct of human society. But I think that was another thing that struck me in my research was how kind of committed the people in charge were meaning essentially like the constellation of PA donors and the elements of the Israeli state that support and promote the PA's existence, how committed everyone is to continue on a capitalist path, you know, where this question of how livable a future state becomes kind of intense and sounds very gloomy because it's assumed that people will be producing this much waste or that at the rate that they're currently producing it, for example. I mean, I think another question about the future of a state or of political belonging on the territory has to do with kind of if you look at the infrastructural unevenness, what you see between Israel and the West Bank, the Israeli state promotes the construction, for example, of landfills in the West Bank and meanwhile is on a path to eradicating landfills for Israel because they're considered environmentally hazardous. And in fact, kind of technologies that preempt the future or that, you know, foreclose certain futures, ecologically speaking. It would be interesting for the people who are thinking about the kind of state they want in the future to consider what it would look like to even out the territory in terms of what the infrastructure could do. I think that's a little bit vague. I was struck by that segregation and unevenness between the infrastructures. Yeah, you're talking about waste in the book and also in this conversation on a bunch of different levels. You know, on the one hand, there's very practical questions about the infrastructure. You know, what does it mean to build up the infrastructure of a society in order to manage you know, all different aspects of people's lives, uh, including the production of waste? But there's also the ways in which this history it's not just a process of the past 15, 20 years, but the idea of waste, the metaphor of waste and the byproducts of history is potentially a through line through which we could think about the history of Israel and Palestine. That's interesting on a number of levels that make me wish that this had been also a more historical project. You know, I'm thinking about the fact, that, as I was saying before, that in parts of the West Bank, it takes sewage that flows on the surface of the land up to 30 years to make it all the way down into the deepest aquifers so that the polluted water that might come up from those aquifers is the product of activities that took place that many years ago. The other historical feature that I'm interested in is the way that 
certain forms of detection have an expertise have influenced the way that waste siege could even be experienced or conceived of at this point. So specifically, I'm, again, I'm thinking about sewage. It took a certain kind of technology to detect that there were nitrates in the water from sewage. And before that, they simply were not known until they possibly made a body sick, for example. So that kind of making visible of the invisible elements of waste siege, it's history. But I think we can see a shift from the metaphorical understanding of Palestine as a territory, as a wasteland that sort of should be settled, in fact, to be redeemed by the Zionist movement, that kind of turning into a literal kind of tangible fact by the turn of the 21st century, I think is interesting. And then the other interesting element for me is that this is a pattern in settler colonies. You know, there's a move from that metaphor to the reality where you find indigenous populations usually ending up most acutely exposed to the harmful elements of waste and besieged. You know, and that's about how populations get organized and the kinds of access to rights they have. There are a couple of different things that, that you mentioned that are really interesting. The first one being the metaphor of waste, right? Like the idea, like you said, of Palestine as kind of a wasteland in the imagination of Europeans and, and of Zionists, you know, this idea of an empty place that should be settled, you know, and that turns into reality. And then there's also the question of the byproducts of history itself, in the sense that if we kind of generalize our notion of waste and you know, it talks just in like about any kind of social, historical, economic process, you know, it's going to have outcomes, whatever that is. And then the question is, what do you do with the byproducts of history? And this is both very practical in terms of like, what do you do with your cardboard boxes that you get from Amazon, right? You know, or with plastic water bottles, but it's also a question of, you know, what happens to people who are left to the side of history? You know, and here the question of the Palestinian refugees, you know, I think is really important. You know, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that the Palestinians are a waste product of history or anything like that. But, but the focus here is to think about, I think that from the perspective of many people, especially within Israel, they don't want to talk about the Palestinians. They would prefer to push them off to the side in the same way that they don't want to think about what happens to their trash bag when they put it at the side of the street. And it's this general issue of like, what is the notion of waste? What is the notion of byproducts, you know, of human society, both in terms of our present day and kind of over the course of history, how that is an important aspect of trying to make meaning of the various strands of the experiences of people over the past generations. Yeah, I think this is a great point. And I would even expand it to say, I think you essentially said it at the end, that let's say for Israelis, especially people who live in Israel, since the erection of the wall, all Palestinians who are in the territories, let's say, And let's say the late 1990s onward, it's not even just the refugees who are kind of ceased to be thought of, but all Palestinians. And I think what's maybe interesting to think about to connect the metaphorical with the material is that sometimes now Palestinians in the West Bank become present for Israelis through their waste. So for example, the sewage that makes its way under the wall and pollutes Israeli farmlands, for example, across the Green Line, or the smoke that wafts from, you know, the burning of e-waste, let's say, into a settlement, uh, a settlement's lower airspace. The metaphor is reactivated through the material. 
So it's like, oh, Palestinians live in a place that is full of waste. And this actually connects me back to my earlier point about who governs Palestine. If for your average Israeli, the Palestinian Authority is the near sovereign government of the West Bank Palestinians, then the smoke that might waft or the sewage that might come under the wall is the manifestation of that entity's failure or its inability to govern and of a kind of cultural backwardness, let's say, overall of Palestinians. And that ends up justifying further interventions for really even progressive, let's say, Israelis and others who are thinking only ecologically. They might say, you know, just for the sake of the environment that we all share, we should really intervene and control what kinds of infrastructures Palestinians build, how many of them there can be in a place, because the more there are, there's a burden on the infrastructure and ecology. So you can see how the metaphorical and the material kind of play together. Absolutely. I think this goes back to something that you said before about how this is an issue, not just in terms of the Palestinians, but for the entire global South and in terms of the history of decolonization in general, which is that so much of the history of decolonization is dependent upon the idea that people are ready to govern themselves. I mean, this is fundamentally the nature of the mandate system, for instance. You know, if we talk about 100 years ago uh, in the Middle East, uh, in the aftermath of World War One, that the European colonial powers did not believe that those territories, those people were capable of ruling themselves. And again, you see this everywhere that you look in terms of how European colonial powers have this kind of place of judgment upon the colonized peoples. And part of the issue here is about to what extent can they manage their own affairs? That's the question that the Europeans are debating. And when you look at the experience of dealing with waste, right, you know, this is one of these areas in which many of these societies are judged perhaps unfairly in terms of their ability to deal with it, because it provides simultaneously the global south as a dumping ground for the waste of Western industrialized societies. And at the same time, the idea of you know, people living in filth, quote unquote, so to speak, you know, provides a justification for continual colonial or pseudo-colonial control. What's special, if not unique, about Israel-Palestine is that the colonizer is next door, so that the extent to which or how the colonized, let's say here, manage their affairs impacts ecologically the experiences and future possibilities of Israelis. It goes far beyond a moral evaluation of Palestinians' relative ability to manage their affairs properly or in an orderly fashion. It's also, you know, the kind of rise of a sense of a global planet, a round connected planet that requires protection wherever we are, has also kind of fed into this process of justifying it. I don't also think that everyone who justifies intervention, let's say, into Palestinian affairs is secretly thinking the environment isn't the real reason. Really, we want to control them and we're just going to use this as a cover. I think what's really more insidious is the way that thinking ecologically makes this a natural thought, makes control of other people, basically approaches to their own waste, a logical and morally appropriate thought. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Yeah, I guess I just mean the shared environment idea that grew out of the 1990s kind of optimism during the Oslo negotiations, essentially, where 
there was this idea that Israelis and Palestinians can understand that they share one environment no matter where their political borders lie. So they should put politics aside essentially to take care of that environment. And that has continued to animate donor funding and the affective and discursive energies of Palestinian Authority bureaucrats, especially also a lot of people who are in Palestinian NGOs who are trying to get the ear of the international community because it seems like finally there's an escape from politics in this place. It seems like finally we can think otherwise and help people connect beyond politics. And I guess what I'm saying is that this idea of a shared environment also ends up having the effect of legitimizing Israeli intervention, sort of the undermining of Palestinian sovereignty, even while it is truly aiming, and you know, in a lot of people's cases who might be using this kind of language, it is aimed at protecting an environment that's seen as extra political. While doing that, it also ends up sitting very comfortably with continued control over Palestinian life. So you're saying in a way that the like discourse of protecting the environment, you know, this sounds like a very nice idea. And it is a nice idea to protect the environment, but it is justification for continued intervention, you know, under that guise. Part of the way that that takes place is that that particular formulation of what the environment is sees the environment as separate from politics. And I guess one interesting thing about waste is that it breaks a lot of these boundaries down. So it's a pollutant to the environment, so it is not the environment. And it's seen as human-made, but it's not exactly human, and it's not infrastructure itself. It's sort of a third thing. My conclusion is that waste is now part of the environment. It is the environment. Like, you can't think the environment and waste separately. And that also suggests, you know, it's one way of talking about the fact that the environment is always a political and human-made phenomenon that we like to separate out for various reasons and that has lived separately discursively for a while in the West. But that I think increasingly people are sort of taking this apart by talking about things like mutant ecologies, you know, or like if you look at Joseph Masco has some great stuff about how, you know, there are plants that thrive on radiation. And I think that's one way to think about what the environment can be where it's the boundaries are not so clear. Yeah. I think this might be an opportunity for us to broaden our scope even more, which is to say that we've talked about the kind of environment of what you've called waste siege in the Palestinian territories. What does this mean on a global scale? One of the things that I think is one of the most striking things that you say in the book is that you talk about the waste siege in Palestine as a metaphor for a dying planet as a whole. So what is going on here when we think about the ways in which the experiences of the Palestinians might speak for everybody, in a way, as we think about the future of our environment on a global scale. I want to go in two maybe seemingly opposite directions with that. One is, of course, to say that when we go planetary with thinking about waste siege, my first hope is that we think about how waste burdens are unevenly distributed wherever you go, and that usually they are unevenly distributed according to political and territorial distributions of power. So 
it can help us understand marginalized communities in the global north, and it can also help us understand the unevenness, as you were pointing out, between the global south and the global north. That's one. But at a planetary level, I think that what really struck me was this realization I had specifically from looking at the infrastructures that can manage in our current time wastes that are produced by humans, is that something always is left over, even from the highest tech, most expensive infrastructures that were not accessible to Palestinians, which suggests that the volume of wastes is simply growing on the planet, while other volumes are staying the same, like water. I think that I can't get over how interesting it is, you know, that you have some forms of materiality that stay the same and some that increase. And in this case, waste is increasing. And I think that suggests, to go back to my point about the environment, that we have to rethink what it is when we think about protecting the planet, what it is that we're trying to protect and what is at our disposal to protect it. So too often we think about waste the way that companies or certain economists do as a kind of externality. And if you keep it in your analysis and even center it in your analysis, which people in the growing subfield of discard studies are doing, then you see that waste is essentially part of what we have in our menu for fixing the problems that we see in front of us. Another way to put that is that when we talk about climate change in this country, especially, we're often doing a speaking as in absolutes because it's such a politicized issue here where there's a need to sound the alarm and say, if we don't do X to change our way of life, the world will end, essentially. And I think that if we imagine sort of the way that Palestinians who are besieged by waste imagine that what they have in front of them to use is the debris of history, to put it one way, and that is in itself, by the standards of an ideal world, imperfect, if we imagine that we only have this imperfect debris of history to work with to fix the problems that we will encounter and have made for ourselves for the future, then that helps us maybe rethink how easy it might be to proceed. And this is so weird because I'm not in the business of making future projections or. I mean, neither am I. I mean, as a historian, <laughs> like I study the past, like, you know, it's very dangerous to discuss the future. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing that I would say is like, this is like a surprisingly optimistic perspective, yeah. to be totally honest. I mean, because for me, when I read this in your book, it was so striking because you talk about the idea of, and again, this is to go back to discard studies, right? You know, waste as quote unquote matter out of place, right? Versus waste as matter with no place to go. And ultimately, the waste of human society is on a global scale has nowhere to go. To some extent, I think that part of what you're talking about here with the Palestinians that is so interesting is that the experience of being besieged by waste is something that they deal with on a day-to-day a -day basis in a very close way, but it's something that we also have to deal with as, as a planet. We may not see it right now, you know, right in front of our faces, but that mostly has to do with the fact that when we talk about waste management as an industry, even recycling and so on and so forth, it's actually mostly a process of moving things further away from us so they're out of sight. And the reality is that ultimately the accumulation of human waste whether we're talking about physical waste, you know, like cardboard boxes and plastic bottles and plastic bags, or whether we're talking about human waste, or whether we're talking about carbon emissions, which by their nature are invisible, 
right? You can't see the amount of carbon in the air, but ultimately that we are all being besieged by waste, even if we don't want to pay attention to it. Yeah. In the case of Palestinians in the West Bank, there was definitely this sense among a lot of people that a better situation, even if the current situation seems to have become the status quo politically, I mean, that movement toward a state and that kind of hope for liberation of some kind creates a sense that the current situation will change. What if someone were to say to us as a planet that the situation is not going to change from a material perspective? In other words, it's not going to improve. Like the waste won't all disappear one day when we get to that time. There's not a time (laughs) when it will go away. And so how could that transform the way we want to live? And I guess when I scale it down to the size of a house, I was thinking, what if someone were to tell you that everything you buy on Amazon or wherever was to accumulate in your garden and your garden is never going to get opened up to let that out? What would you do? Like, how would you live differently? In a way, because Palestinians waiting for a political solution, quote unquote, are in this holding pattern, even though I just said that there is a hope for a time when things will be better, there's also a way in which they're not waiting. And so they are making something else that may be like a tiny improvement on the thing that way I was experiencing this thing yesterday on a daily basis instead of waiting and instead of being able to push things further afield. To go back to my unevenness point then, I am not besieged in the same way or to the same extent as the people who can't afford to live further away from the dump site in my town. One way to talk about that is to say we're also living at different temporalities where, you know, that sort of end times moment where all my stuff comes back to overwhelm me is really pushed off for me to a time in the far future, whereas someone else is living with it very much in the present. And it's interesting to imagine the world as through discard studies, say, as a lot of people living at different temporalities and different exposures to that kind of burden and harm. What you're getting out here is really important. The language of temporalities, or it might even mask like the, the importance of what you're talking about here, because it's not just a theoretical issue. It's very pertinent, especially for people living in the global south with any of these kind of ecological crises that we might talk about, whether we're talking about the production of waste or climate change in general, one of the things that always strikes me is the way in which it's going to be experienced in different ways by different people around the world. So to take a particular example, kind of shifting to thinking about the climate, broadly speaking, you think about what's going to happen in Israel and Palestine over the course of the next hundred years, as the world gets hotter, as sea levels rise, the Gaza Strip, and Tel Aviv are both going to be facing similar pressures from rising sea levels, however much that rise might be. And for sure, the Israelis are going to deal with this in one way, and the Palestinians are not going to be able to deal with it in the same fashion because they don't have the same infrastructure, they don't have the same resources. And just imagining what that future world looks like, people are going to experience climate change, people are going to experience this process of inundation with waste at different speeds and in different ways, depending on their level of privilege, their economic capabilities, that people can flee, right? The entire idea of climate migration is based on the idea that you can move, right? There's so much going on here in terms of thinking about what this entire perspective 
means for thinking about the planet as a whole, but also understanding how different people, different groups will experience it differently. And we see that in the past too, that, that, that people in the past have experienced different processes at different speeds in different ways. That's really what informs our understanding of the future. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that a lot of really important work on environmental justice and inequality has pointed to just this. What really struck me in my research was that despite this quote-unquote objective unevenness, the political and cultural ramifications of that unevenness are unpredictable and contingent. For example, this village called Chukba outside of Ramallah, that's already in the future in some sense. You know, it's already a dump site. It's kind of unlivable in many ways. And the sense among the people that I talked to about who was responsible for that was so complex and not directed mainly at Israel. So that even though that place, if you were to sort of go right across the green line or to a nearby settlement and have a coffee and then go there, you would think, you know, I see in front of me the perfect kind of sociological, political science example of inequality. That doesn't actually translate for people who live in these circumstances into political mobilization, for example. That to me was kind of part of the puzzle is like how people in Shukba can be blaming other people in Shukba, actually for their condition, that makes it much harder to mobilize at a planetary scale or even a national scale or any other scale that could make a change. And I think it's bringing us back to the question of how waste interferes in culture. It is both a reflection of culture, as the early anthropologist said, you know, it is matter out of place, sort of it's how a culture produces order, essentially. But it is also like an actor in changing culture. And I think I want to highlight that that's an element that some people grab onto and then others kind of overlook a little bit, which is that, you know, there are all kinds of circumstances where waste is a problem, not at the environmental level for Palestinians, but at an ethical level or at the level of aesthetics, for example, and how they want to adorn their homes and bodies and how they experience class. That just like really throws a wrench in our simpler, maybe, environmental justice framings that see inequality and then just kind of want to go fix it. If we kind of focus on the Palestinian situation in particular, there are a lot of people who look at the political situation over the past 25, 30 years or longer, and they see the, the status of the Palestinians as a stateless people. And they think, okay, at some point in the future, we will hopefully come to a position where we will have a, you know, an agreement that will lead to the formation of a state for the Palestinians. And this is based on a series of assumptions that statehood is a natural position, right? Uh, which is to say that the Palestinians are kind of like disjointed or disconnected from the natural state of political affairs and that, that at some point in the future, we will resolve this issue and the Palestinians will have a state, you know, which would be, you know, a good thing, right? And so people would say, okay, so whatever kind of situation that the Palestinians are dealing with is kind of unnatural as a result of the broader political situation. And this deals with the waste as well. And so the hope then would be that in the future, that when the Palestinians have a state, that then they would have the infrastructure to deal with you know, the situation that you've been describing. But I think that part of what you're saying here that is so fascinating is that you're actually saying that the Palestinian experience of being besieged by waste is not abnormal. And in fact, it is actually the future of our planet as a whole. 
as opposed to something that we're going to move away from? Yeah, that's one way to put it. I think many communities on the planet are already in the future in that sense. But I also think that waste siege in the way that I defined it at the very beginning of our conversation is a condition that can be arrived at for a number of different reasons or as a result of a number of different processes. It can, for example, result inside a well-established state like the United States, which is like until recently maybe the standard for what a normal state is, you know, what any state wants to become. In the case of Palestine, waste siege emerged as a result of Palestine's, let's say, quote-unquote, abnormality, but that condition, in fact, is an example of a common global condition. Yeah. I mean, I think that this question of, of what is normal and what is not is really important to consider, which is like you said, that basically everybody on the planet aspires to be like America, or again, at least until recently. And this is true both in terms of the politics but also in terms of consumption, you know, if you travel to India, you travel to China, and you travel basically anywhere and everybody wants to live like an American. And this is true in Israel, too. I know that it was a really big deal, for instance, when Amazon started shipping to Israel. And there are all sorts of cultural and historical aspects to why that's a big deal. But there are practical results or practical outcomes and byproducts when everybody wants to have a car, right? Or when everybody wants to get Amazon, you know, two-day shipping, you know, and then therefore have those waste byproducts of the cardboard boxes and the plastic bags and, you know, the carbon emissions and really what this means in terms of the planet. If we look at Israel and Palestine as a microcosm that for the most part is constrained physically, right? I think part of the issue here in terms of what you're talking about of the waste that is besieging the Palestinians is because there's nowhere else for it to go. You know, if we talk about the ecological regulations and policies over the past 50 years in the U.S., Ultimately, it's been a process of moving that waste byproducts further away from us, as opposed to actually resolving the core issue of overconsumption or, you know, of wastefulness. But in terms of Israel and Palestine, there's nowhere else to put the stuff. It's not like they can ship it off to China, you know, so easily. And certainly Israel's neighbors aren't going to take it. And so all of this is just to say that looking at this sort of sense of people wanting to be more like Americans in the natural waste byproducts. And Israel, again, is, and Palestine is, is a microcosm of this entire situation, I think is a really powerful and scary proposition in a certain way. To go back to the Palestinian Authority kind of taking all of the oxygen out of the room, sucking it all out of the room, is that the supposedly two-state project that the PA is in the process of pursuing and building has essentially sidelined and eradicated or driven underground all kinds of lifeways and political positions that could have made waste siege less of a siege. So as an example, it is very, very difficult for people to get funding, Palestinians to get funding for very small scale wastewater treatment plants, for example, that would decenter the process of managing waste in Palestine and allow for a different kind of possibly consciousness for Palestinians about their own sewage. And also it would allow them to reuse it locally, which Israel has generally obstructed. But the PA's mission to centralize and the international community's attachment to that idea has essentially foreclosed other 
ways that sort of improve the situation, which is basically me saying this desire to be normal, to be the state that looks like America, has in very material terms exacerbated waste siege. You know, and I'm also thinking about the fact that the communist parties in Palestine have also been sidelined and their vision for what kind of scale of organization would make sense and how that relates to waste. You know, I can imagine there being quite a variation because the consumption that's associated with capitalism being the main approach is part of what has landed Palestinians where they are. How does this help us to think about the history of modernity in a very broad sense? Which is to say that it's obviously very contemporarily relevant, especially when we talk about the climate crisis. But when we think about the history of industrialization, the history of capitalism, colonialism, how does this approach of thinking about waste help us to think through, in a certain way, the byproducts of history, you know, the outcomes of history? Really, your question has been answered by the many, many scholars who are thinking about the Anthropocene right now. You know, really, that when we look at that which we try not to look at, essentially, at waste, and also at that which we cannot see. So I'm thinking about all of the invisible pollutants that we are able to see through dying bodies and sick bodies, for example. We see that these processes, industrialization, capitalism, and colonialism, on the one hand, they are ongoing, but that they always involve this kind of shadow material set of effects I think thinking with people like Ann Stoller can be valuable for this, for thinking about what she calls imperial debris, that, you know, essentially our political arrangements and our economic arrangements leave an imprint that carries into the next period, which to me suggests also that if we're thinking about kind of how history works, that history accrues in this very material form, we privilege certain things that carry forward like archives, architecture, certain kinds of infrastructure. And I guess a very simple point is to say waste, both in its material form, like let's say an old landfill is important to have in that same process of thinking about what carries forward, but also normalized processes of waste production can also be seen as a kind of artifact that carries forward. You're saying that waste is a product of the past. Which is ultimately that one of the reasons why history matters is because history has an outcome. And it's not just a question of how we got from point A to point B, you know, how we got from the present until today, but about the byproducts of those historical processes. Like you said, we pay attention to certain kinds of outcomes of history, but there are a lot of ones that we don't pay attention to, things that we perhaps prefer not to look at. And the question of waste, like, you know, really centers us on thinking about not just what has been good about history, you know, that, that has led us to the present, right? You know, not just a progress-oriented idea of the direction of human experience, but about all the negative things that come out of it as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think to add the anthropological point, I'll say that if we can do two things at the same time, which is track the material remains of history and track how humans perceive those remains, we also, we learn multiple things. So For me, the fact that the Palestinian Authority bureaucrats I talked to in 2009 were describing to me the process of building infrastructures that started in the mid-1990s as basically the beginning, like year zero, essentially, for order in the Palestinian landscape. 
was super interesting. And I could only realize how interesting by having done the kind of material history myself of what infrastructures actually were there before and the way that the Palestinian Authority was invested in calling this year zero. You know, so I think like I was able to also get into the, for lack of a better word, cosmology of a state building process and apparatus by having a sense of which material remains were apprehensible and in what way as they carried forward into this sort of modernist project. Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of infrastructure, one of the things that, that really struck me reading your book and thinking about the idea of being besieged by your environment alongside this question of essentially a lack of infrastructure and the lack of state intervention in the sense that like, you know, there's just not the capability to deal with the waste that's being accumulated and that's being thrust upon them. It really struck me. I mean, obviously you wrote this book before the outbreak of COVID, but I think that what is so interesting there is to think about this entire experience that we've been going through over the past year, you know, or so of, like I said, being besieged by the environment and, you know, certainly under the last administration, you know, literally not having the infrastructure in place to deal with it. I think it's not just about waste, right? You're talking about a question of what does it mean for there to be a lack of leadership or whether that is internally driven or due to external factors in terms of dealing with a crisis? Yeah, I think the analogy is right. And I think that one way I would nuance slightly that last point about absence of infrastructures is that both here in the United States during the pandemic and in Palestine, what I see is a patchwork of hyper-governance and hypo-governance in the sense that there is plenty of governing going on. There's surveillance going on. We have police entering the homes of any Black family at any time, you know, and that feeling of inundatedness, actually, by the police that some communities have. And then you have the kind of inability to get a vaccine, right? Like that you call the number and there's no one answering the phone. I make that point about a patchwork or about hypergovernance and hypogovernance to sort of speak back to the idea that there's just the absence of a state because that doesn't get at the experience of governance overall, which isn't kind of sliced by sector the way that we often do. Now we're like thinking about infrastructure in terms of the pandemic, but the state itself is these many features that kind of dip in and out of society at any given time. For Palestinians, the fact that Israel is there and is such a powerful state for its citizens and also can surveil them and can tap into their cell phones at any time and can prevent them from traveling or moving makes the kind of withdrawal and the neglect that much more offensive. And it's not the same as absence. For me, one of the big questions that I think about and that I talk about with my students in particular is the ways in which Israel and Palestine are important on a global scale. This is a relatively small territory, relatively small numbers of people there, and yet it dominates the headlines. And so when you look at the history of waste and the environment as it has developed there, how is it that you think that this particular angle, this particular lens, helps us to illuminate global issues? One thing I took away from this research is the way that environmental custodianship become twinned with deservingness for sovereignty or, you know, which in a way is an old story, you know, that 
managing waste and ideas of cleanliness have long associated with someone's position on a civilizational ladder. And now you can see it through this particular set of experiences in Israel-Palestine at the scale of states and like which states get to be called states, essentially. What's interesting to pair with that is the way that consumption and consumerism are equally measures of the normal cultural way and of civilization. And that's sort of perfect dilemma because those two forces go kind of work at cross purposes, essentially. What is it in the relationship then between the aspiration towards being a consumptive society and the reality of the waste that is being produced, you know, and that which for the most part is being you know, pushed off to the side where it's out of view? When we think about decolonization, which is such an important concept right now for so many people, we won't be able, I think, based on my research, to only think in terms of categories like colonialism or settler colonialism or kind of human rights, let's say, when thinking about Palestine's future, we will also have to integrate an analysis of the environment and capitalism to understand what kinds of futures might be the most just, you know. And I think another way to put it is that I, in line with some other scholars who have recently revived discussions of capitalism in relation to Palestine, I think it's very important for us, for lack of a better word, or to use this word a bit flexibly, an intersectional understanding of what is unjust about the arrangement in Palestine in order to think about the kind of future that it could have. Well, I just want to thank you again so much, you know, for joining me for this really, really fascinating conversation. I think that there are so many angles in which you could take this approach. You know, I think again about like when I talk about the challenges in Israel and Palestine, you know, we are often talking about the resources of modern industrial life, right? You know, water, oil, arable land for food production. And you're really focusing us on a really different side of things, right? In terms of the byproducts as opposed to, you know, the resources necessary for production. And it's just such a fascinating approach. And I just want to thank you for a really wonderful book and, you know, having a chance to talk about it. So thank you. Thanks for such wonderful questions, Jason. And thanks to you for listening into this conversation with Sophia Stamatapulu Robbins. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.